0: Good Sunday morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. We'd like you to stand and join us as we praise God this morning. chains into our freedom there's no better place to be there's no better place to be in your presence there is truth in your presence mountains move we forever
1: no better place to be there's no better place to be in your presence.
2: Good. You guys can have a seat. Hey, welcome to church today. Um, It's warm in here. It's cold outside. Winter is upon us. Some of you are mourning that, and some of you are celebrating. I don't know. But uh, we're all here together, so we can um, just uh, put our uh, preferences aside, shall we? All right. So, hey, um, so I'm not usually the one who does this, but I pretty much have a clue as to what we're supposed to do. So if you are brand new here today, I just want to say welcome to Calvary. My name is Chad. I have the opportunity of being the lead pastor here and love doing so. Haven't been here quite a year. So if you're new, just consider me new and we're friends because that's true. So uh, if you came in, hopefully you received one of these cards, a connection card. At the bottom of your connection card, there's like a little tear off. We would love to get to know just a little bit more about you and also receive your prayer request those all go in the connection box in the back. So don't just hand them to me because I may lose them or somebody else may, but there's connection boxes out in the foyer, and that's where those go. So please do so. We love to pray around here. We love to pray for what you are concerned about, and we love to also celebrate what's going on in your life, and we get a mixed bag of those. So that is always, always good. So also, one of the things that we do around here is, we believe in generosity. We believe in giving. We want to give back to God what is God's to begin with. So if you are someone who's going to give, whether to missions or also uh, just a tithe or offering to the church, you can do that through the church's website, the text to give, which is also on your card here. And, and you can also, um, so what did I say? Text to give. Um, and then I said the website. And what's the other way? Somebody help me. Good old-fashioned envelope system, right in the connection box. I didn't forget. I was testing you. Yeah. So if you're clapping, that means you're putting your your money in the box. Is that is that what that? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Hey, uh, before we jump back into some singing, I just want to honor some special folks in the room. Friday was Veterans Day, so if you're a veteran and uh, you have served uh, our great country in that way, would you stand right now so we can honor you and your service? Thank you so much. Thank you for your service and sacrifice from, from our heart to yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you for whatever you did, wherever you did it. Um, it's all good. Would you stand with me? I invite you to pray with me as well. God, we just come back into this, this spirit of worship through singing. And God, I just, I thank you for times like this where you meet us right where we are. And Lord, that everything that's going on in our world and everything that's going on in our individual worlds, God, you you are fully aware of all these things. So Jesus, please, in this moment, as we sing these songs of praise and worship back to you, God, let us sense and feel your presence. Let us leave this space today when it's time for us to go different in the way that we became. Amen.
1: lost, but he brought me in, his love for me, oh, his love for me, who the sun sets free chosen, not forsaken, I am who you say I am, you are for
3: The smooth and red There was a battle, a war between death and life, there on a tree, the Lamb of God was crucified.
1: Yeah.
0: to Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, we thank you for the cross, we thank you that you gave your life for us, while we were yet sinners, you poured your blood out for us, we thank you Lord for that, we thank you for your presence this morning, we ask that you be with us, be with Pastor Chad, and as he brings us your word, we love you Lord, and we thank you in Jesus name, amen.
2: Amen. The wonderful cross. Haven't heard that song in a while. It's been a minute, but it's a good one. I'm not really sure, but I think we used to sing that in choir here many, many moons ago. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up in my head. I do that from time to time. Oh, we're not done yet. All right. Hey, so we're in week two. Uh, <laughs> Paul just said encore. All right. I'd be good for that. Um, So we're in week two of our series called It Just Takes One. And what I talked about last week was the idea and the reality that every one of us has a bit of influence uh, in the world with the friendships and the people we work with and our family members. We have influence and it's a God-given influence and that is something that we need to surrender to God and also to see what it is that He would have for us. And we're going to add to that today in, in talking about just a snippet about what was going on in a guy by the name of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, you can go to Nehemiah 5. We're going to be there in just a moment or 2 or 10. Who knows? We'll see. But while you're flipping there, I want to give you some some good news and bad news. Here's a general rule. We always give people an option. We think, well, if we, we, we go with one way, then they're going to hear it better. Actually, studies show that if you say good news or bad news, it's best to just come out with the bad news early. Just come out with the bad news because they're not going to hear the good news because they're waiting for the bad news. So I'm going to give you the bad news. Many of you, like me, voted on Tuesday, and our person was not elected. That's the bad news, right? Like, we wanted them. It didn't happen. But the good news is Jesus Christ is still on the throne. So that's the good news. No matter what goes on uh, in our world, Jesus is on the throne. But as we're going to see today, it means that there's some things that we should do if we're indeed Jesus people, if you're not a Jesus person, I just want to say thank you so much for being here and attending and just participating in this worship service. I'm grateful that anyone who's not a believer, that they would come into a place like this just curious maybe or even bribed to come to service. But I'm just so thankful that you took a chance to come here. But if you're a Jesus person, this means if Jesus is on the throne, that means that we have some things that we need to do, not just vote. And We're going to dig into some of these today as we look at this guy by the name of Nehemiah, who was a, just a regular worker who then becomes a sort of politician in his area, and he does the right thing. So in all the, the, all the things in the world, when we scratch our head and wonder why politicians do the wrong thing, anyone ever scratch their head and wonder why they do the wrong thing? We see one who did the right thing today. So I thought I'd give you a sense of optimism, and just so you know, there's a chance that they may happen again. So... You know, one of the things as we talk about influence, when we have influence, it's always with this perspective that there should be an impact that's made with our influence if we're actually doing it. So we don't just uh, just have influence and think that we're just doing it without some sort of effect in the world. And yet we're supposed to have an impact. Now, I just want you to know that there's a lot of people who who choose maybe wrongly. I've just made up six different cultural commandments of which I think people, when they engage the world, and sometimes we can make the wrong impact in the world. And I don't want us to be these people, but I know just by putting the list, and now we all see it, I know that just having this list on the screen, some of you are looking at that and you're like, that's pretty much what's going on in the world. Like, the reason why the world isn't changing, the reason why people aren't coming to Christ as they should is perhaps because Christians are too busy taking sides. We're just taking sides. We're not showing Jesus. We're taking sides. And then we're just arguing with one another, kind of just volleying words over a wall or or over social media, and we're all capsing each other to prove a point or whatever. And sometimes we're just taking sides and we're tribing up. And the second thing is... We're just projecting who we want to be instead of actually living who it is that we're supposed to be. So we're projecting, projecting, projecting instead of being honest about who we are. Speaking about being honest as to who we are, sometimes us as Christians, we're too busy managing our own image. We're managing this image of who it is that we're supposed to be. And we've been dancing all around this since since I preached a series, Shiny Happy People. Who remembers that series? Who slept through half of it? Let me see. I'm looking at your hands. I'm looking. I'm looking. Paul, just Paul, you did. Um, I expect you at the altar here in a little bit, Paul. Um, But here's the thing. Sometimes we're just so busy managing our image. Instead of actually being a Christian in our world and engaging in issues we should be involved in, instead we're just managing the image as to what what we want people to see us as. Instead of actually being these people. And this tends to lead us to avoid or minimizing personal risk. To avoid or minimize personal risk, be like, I don't know, I'm not, I can't risk this, and I can't risk that, I'm not going to go on that mission trip, I'm not going to advocate for that cause, I'm not going to talk to that, that neighbor or coworker. I'm not going to share my faith with someone, I'm not going to share my testimony, and we're, what we're doing is we're avoiding the personal risk that's involved with that. There's always a risk element when it comes to a walk with Jesus, always. Because someone who commits their life to Jesus, they've given their life to Jesus. So for him to do much in our lives as we've committed to him. And then the fifth one is just to live for self. And maybe this is just the, the combination of the first four. I'm not really sure. But it's just living for self instead of living for God or embracing the world or advocating for a cause. It's just living for self. And because then we don't know what else to do, we just repeat the cycle. We just jump back into one of these things. And this leads us to be disengaged Christians in the world. I'm so thankful that, that we have people who've gotten it right, who have gotten it right, is what we'll see with Nehemiah. But yet, what if we've just settled for being right instead of doing what's right? Instead of, What if we've just settled for, like, we're right and you're wrong And we have our denomination, and we're better than that other denomination, and and we're better than those people, and we've got it figured out, and the world's going the way of the world, and we know where it's headed. What if we've just settled for being right instead of doing what's right? I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I can tell you, for me, this is one of the deep flaws, I think, in the church today, our church and other churches I'm not saying the Capital C Church to kind of put that off on another, another group. I'm saying even our church. I think we get this wrong sometimes. We've settled with being right. Like we know some scripture. We know some doctrine. We've, you know, we've sat in the seats for a while. We, we know some Bible stories. We know how the story ends. And we've settled for being right instead of doing what's right. The bottom line for today is this. When Jesus saves a soul, he illuminates the eyes to see social problems and offer real solutions. When Jesus saves his soul, he illuminates the eyes connecting with us being the light of the world that I preached last week. He illuminates the eyes to see social problems and offer real solutions. And for us to engage in these real real solutions like Nehemiah did. Here, here's a quick synopsis. Nehemiah, 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 I just made that up. Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king which means back in his old job he tested the wine and food of the king and he was there to basically save the king's life because if the wine was poisoned or the food would be poisoned he would die instead of the king that was kind of the deal so it came with a high level of trust if you're the cupbearer to the king obviously you're on you're really close to the king and he's in essence trusting his life to you and to your judgment So Nehemiah was close to the king, and he heard this word about his people. He's a Jewish man. He hears the word about his people back in Jerusalem that the walls of the city of Jerusalem were down, which was a really big deal for them. They didn't have an army. They didn't have a police. It wasn't like like here. Their walls were their protection. And he heard that the walls were down. He heard about some of the spiritual condition of the people, too. So for him, he was moved, he was moved by God to go to the king and ask the king boldly, he said, would you allow me to go back to my homeland to help restore the walls? And then he even tells, he tells the king, he says, if you allow me to go back, I, once the once the walls are built, I'll come back and serve you. So he wasn't looking at some long-term political move to where he's now going to go live in the lap of luxury as, as what he'll he would be considered the governor in that area. It's different than the governor of a state, but the kind of the governor of an area. Instead, he did what we want all of our politicians to do. Eventually, right off into the sunset and pass it on to somebody else. So he decides, that, or he tells the king in the, in, that he'll come back. And the king says, go, absolutely. Not only that, the king actually sends some of his resources to help the work. But it just takes one, doesn't it? It took Nehemiah to go boldly before the king, to step out in faith, to go there, to see the problem. Everybody else saw the problem, but they weren't doing anything about it. The people who lived in the city, they didn't do anything about it. The city, they just, I believe, they just became blind to the issue. They just see the walls down there, like, oh, the walls are down. Oh, now more walls are crumbling. Oh, those walls are crumbling. And I think that they had just stopped seeing the issue. And God did what God does many times He sends somebody else into an environment to help them to see the issue. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah. We're going to jump into verse 1. Now, the passage of Scripture that we're going to go through is lengthy, so I'm going to do things a little different than I normally do because we're going to go through 19 verses And we're going to extrapolate four different points from it, and I'm just going to read the passage. I'm going to give you the point point, read the passage as we go along instead of reading all 19 and then reading them again and again and again. So I think you'll pick up what I'm talking about in just a minute. So the first thing, if you're a note taker, if you have one of these handy dandy things like I do, you're going to see that the great outcry erupts over economic inequality. That there's a great outcry that erupts over economic inequality. Equality. Verse 1, Nehemiah 5 says this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others, now this is a third different group of people. Still others were saying... We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on the fields and vineyards, although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs. Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So this this great... Inequality, it's an economic inequality that the king is demanding taxes and there's no relief coming and the people aren't relying on each other. Instead, it's every person for themselves. And now, if we were to break this passage down a little further, you'd see the three different groups of people, they tell you really what the, what the situation is. So, in verse 2, It says, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. In other words, they didn't have land of their own. So they were dependent on someone else altogether because they didn't have land. They didn't have livestock. They didn't have land. They couldn't farm. They couldn't feed themselves. They were relying upon somebody else. The second group of people, verse 3. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So these people did have land. They had some livestock, and they, had, they were able to do some agriculture to feed themselves. And yet, they're having to mortgage their fields because of this tax. And there's a big problem because, again, in this time, they should be able to rely upon one another. But instead, it's every person for themselves. Another group of people, verse 4, still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as the countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery, to debt slavery. It's different than the slavery that happened in the United States. It's different. It's debt slavery. In other words, they would have to subject their sons and daughters to somebody they owed money to, and then their their kids would work off that debt, and then once they worked off the debt, then they would be able to come back back to the home. That was the idea. And this was kind of built into their way of life at the time. And it says in the scripture, at the end of verse 5, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. In other words, we don't know a way out. We don't know a way out. This isn't the reason why Nehemiah went there. Nehemiah went there to help restore the wall, but once he he, he got into the city, he realized that there's some other things going on. That there was inequality that wasn't because of the tyrants over them. Instead, it was within his own people that they were actually mistreating one another. And although people, some people had a lot of wealth and some people didn't have wealth, and now they're even having to enslave their kids to pay off these debts. So Nehemiah steps into this situation, and it's not even the, the, the first reason why he even went there. You see, sometimes a cause finds us, and other times we must find it. Sometimes a cause finds us. I think I've told you this story before, and I'll tell you it again because it's just integral to my testimony. When Marla and I came to Calvary in late 2000, I believe, either that or early 2001, we were both saved, and we were very eager once we came in the doors. And we we, we weren't the type of people to just come in and sit and just kind of wait for everything to be handed to us. Instead, as soon as we came in, we wanted to get involved. And I knew specifically where it was that God wanted me to be involved. And then God kind of invited Marla into that too. She kind of got excited about what I was excited about. And then we we posed a really good team together. But prior to ministry and back in in those days, I was working on airplanes. I was a knuckle dragger. It's a common term for a mechanic. And I was just pushing a toolbox around airplane to airplane. And that's what I did for the better part of 10 years. And yet we got involved in, in the church and I knew that I wanted to be involved and I should be involved in kids' ministry. I knew that because of some things that had happened in my childhood that weren't that favorable and and how I felt as a kid. And I didn't want any kid to feel like I felt. So we came into kids' ministry at that time, and and Richard was in charge of it. Some of you know who Richard and Beth are. They served here for years. And I came in and I talked to Richard, and I said, I I really want to work with kids and then I told him why, and I told him my backstory, and, and we did what we should do, and I think a background check and stuff, and, and got us rolling. And then we jumped right in, and I told Richard, I said, here's the thing. I said, I don't know what it is that, that I can do. I had never spoke publicly other than like a speech communication class that I probably got a C in in college. I don't even know. But it's like I, I hadn't really done anything. I just wasn't that type of person. But I told him I also do, I'll, I'll do anything I just, even if I can just get involved in kids' ministry and if I can help one kid to not feel the way that I felt when I was growing up and that I can have one kid that I can share the love of Jesus, then that's all I'm looking for. That's it. If I can just have one. And he said, well, I can guarantee I can give you one. I'm gonna throw you in a room with 10 or 20. Let's see how it goes, sink or swim time. But it was great. It was great ministry. Part of that journey I'm not going to tell you their names just because they may live in the area, but part of that journey, we were getting ready to go to a kid's camp. And back in those days, we always took our elementary kids to camp. And Marla and I would take our vacation time, and we would go to camp with the kids, and it was amazing fun, exhaustive, amazing fun. And so prior to camp, we had a lot of uh, bus kids at that time who couldn't fund their own way to camp. So we would go. And their parents weren't involved at church, so we would actually go on all the bus route and we would for those who'd be prospective going to camp. Some of you did the same thing. Some of you are with me when we did this. But I remember specifically going to these two little boys, they were brothers, and I remember they were they were rough here. And they were they were ones that, that make you depend on Jesus so much in ministry to kids. They were those. And they were they were they were so rough and yet it, it was so fruitful. And when they came in, they brought so much excitement, but they were completely undisciplined. And I remember going to their house, and it was an eye-opener, not not their house, it was actually an apartment. Um, And I I remember going upstairs and then going to the door and seeing the home environment that they were in, and all of it made sense. And then I I went and asked mom, and and then the dad cussed me, true story, at the door. Um, But then I asked mom if they could go to camp, and, and when they went to camp, they were the type of kids who went to camp and they brought one change of clothes for a week-long camp. And again, I know this, some of this is old news because some of you walked this with us. You see, in this instance, the reason why we got involved in serving to begin with is because we were actually looking for an opportunity of ministering to those types of kids. Because sometimes we find a cause and then at other times a cause finds us. And, you know, I just want you to know that that serving in those aspects put us in an amazing situation to be used by God. And the reason why I'm here today is because I said yes in serving, and Marla said yes to serving in kids' ministry. I firmly believe that. And that that may not be your story, but what I can tell you is what can be your story is when you choose to get out of the seats and you advocate for a cause and you choose to actually serve, to serve in the local church and even outside the local church, there's a part of you that comes to life that you don't even know is dead right now. And yet you won't know it until you commit to Jesus and you start serving and advocating for that cause. But sometimes a cause finds us and then at other times we must find it. And I believe that you and I are the same in that way. When when we lived in Georgia, there was this... Who likes ice cream, by the way? Anyone? Ice cream people? Who, who just... I just want to canvas. I always try and canvas who, who's here. Um, and, and no judgment here, but who would rather have yogurt than ice cream? You, you may be in the minority. Thank you. It's okay. There you go. Um, you're definitely in the minority, but Jesus loves you, so it's Okay. We're all here together. There was this place that opened up in Dublin, Georgia, called Sweetberry, and it was different than any other place I'd ever gone to. It was the type of place where you get all the different types of yogurt, but you actually don't you don't pay um, just for like a large, small, whatever. You pay for how many ounces or pounds of yogurt and then toppings you put in the cup. You don't i if you ever who's ever gone to a place like that? They're amazing and they're amazingly expensive because you go in and you like you put the stuff on there and then you put the toppings, and then after you put the toppings, you're like, that looks really good and then you go next to it and you see there's more toppings and then you load that up and then they go put it on a scale and that's actually how that's how you get billed. and yet you go there once and you're like, this is exciting and then the next time you're like, "I think those gummy bears weigh less than the snickers I don't know' it's, <laughs> you start start doing that but but sweetberry was was really interesting too because when you would go in, they had all these different types of yogurts, and they have these little bitty pink spoons, and they would allow you just like a little sample size, and you could sample as much of the yogurt as you wanted, and it was amazing, and I don't even know how they didn't keep from going broke because people like me were like, oh, I get curious about all of them, but you, you'd always take the pink spoon, and then you would sample it, and, and then the idea was that you would buy it, and then you would do uh, do the thing, right? You see, but there has to be a point where you stop sampling And you just buy in. My hope and desire for you is that maybe you've sampled serving in the community. Maybe you've sampled serving in the church. That you've been just enjoying the pink spoon. But that you'd be doing away with the pink spoon and that you would actually buy in to start serving. Not just within this space, but also outside of this space. Being a person... Like Nehemiah, who takes it upon himself, though he goes there for a cause, but he's so invested in it that although he goes there for one reason, he's willing to, to invest in another area. Let's continue in all, on in our story. Verse 6 through uh, the beginning of verse 12 says this. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This is Nehemiah. He says, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. We'll cycle back to what that means in a minute. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us they kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. The hundredth part of the The money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. So you have these poor Jewish people who are trying to pay taxes. Some of them don't have land. Some of them do have land, and they're having to sell their grain, and they're having to give their grain back to give their grain away, to pay off their taxes. And then you have others who have no grain and perhaps no land to farm, so they're actually sending their kids off to debt slavery just to pay their taxes, to pay this usury tax. A usury tax in their day is the equivalent to loan sharking in our day. So somebody within the faith community would say, we'll loan you the money, but with a certain percent of interest. Sure, you need some money to pay your taxes, no problem. We got you covered. But when you pay it back, I want you to pay it back at a greater percent. So Nehemiah hears about all this injustice, and holy discontent emerges within Nehemiah. Holy discontent emerges within Nehemiah. he's thinking to himself this must stop and notice it seems almost like a passing phrase in the middle of this passage he said shouldn't you walk in the fear of god to avoid the reproach of our gentile enemies in other words don't you realize that you are to have influence here don't you realize that the gentiles those who are far from god they're watching what you're doing don't you realize this When you're actually bringing even more injustice upon God's people, don't you understand? Don't you understand that those who are outside of grace and those who who don't know Jesus are looking at us as a church? Don't you understand? Don't you understand that the way you talk and the way you live and the way you treat one another is actually a model to those outside the church? Don't you understand that? that your influence automatically has an impact. Don't you understand that? This holy discontent emerges within Nehemiah. He he hears about these issues, and he realizes that it must stop. And then he's not willing for it to just continue. Here's a deep dive into into what should have been happening in their day with some scriptures, and I'm not going to give you time to open them up. But Deuteronomy 15.1 says this, at the end of the seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. So at the end of seven years, that's Deuteronomy 15.1, at the end of seven years, all debts were supposed to be canceled. In other words, that there was a complete reset. But also, there was another reset at the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, there was a year of Jubilee. At the year of Jubilee, it was even different than that. There was a whole social construct in their day and it was it was as much a spiritual work as it was a social construct that every 50th year the year of jubilee that all real property should automatically revert back to its original owner. That all real property would revert back to its original owner. That's Leviticus 25:10 tells us that. And those who were compelled to live in poverty to to take care of things and And those who had to sell themselves into debt slavery, that they would regain their liberty. That it wasn't a lifelong thing. It wasn't that you were just committing your whole life to this. It was to to recoup the debt. But the idea was there was always either the seventh year when things would be canceled and the 50th year that everything would be reset and that you would be free again that even if you got in trouble, there was something of the social system that all of those things would be wiped away. And it was, it was as much a spiritual belief as to what should happen as it was a social construct in that time. This was, I believe, God's way of showing that people are more important than profits, and people are more important than personal gain, and that people are more important than property that it's people above all things on earth outside of God that it's about people it's about taking care of people you see i get really nervous when people advocate for causes and i'm not saying you shouldn't or should i get really nervous when people advocate for causes that don't have to do with some sort of human aspect i get i get really nervous when especially when a christian goes through and they advocate for a cause that doesn't have a direct human implication. I get really nervous because my mind goes to, it, back to, to Romans 1 and thinking, okay, is there some distortion here to where we've actually lost sight of what should be most important? And what Jesus said was most important when he summarized all 613 of the Old Testament laws was loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. That's what Jesus summarized all of the law and prophets into. So I get nervous when people, they have this, this cause, they rally for a cause that doesn't have a human implication, and I think, I don't know, I don't know. I, I get a little nervous and, and, and cautious when I hear such things as that. You see, when we advocate for a cause, the cause of, that has to do with humanity, with people, that whether it's a, a social issue or whether it's a spiritual issue, when we do those types of things, We're standing in the cap just like Jesus did. Because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, the cross is the place where mercy and justice meet. The cross is the place where mercy and justice meet. Where it was the mercy of the God upon those who would repent of their sins and acknowledge Jesus Christ. And they would ask him to be Lord and Savior. Those then empowered with the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. And not to white-knuckle Christianity. And yet there's so much mercy there, but yet there was also an act of justice because Jesus had to die on the cross to give us, to give us salvation, to give us a, a connection with the Father. After all, it was Jesus who said, No one comes to the Father but through him. He also reminded us in John 14:6 that no one comes to the Father. And he also adds in the Gospel of John, he says, in 14:6, he says, And Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. That he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. So there's so much mercy there that Jesus bestowed upon us. And yet there's the justice act to where he is paying for the sins of the world when we could not ever endure the weight of that on our own. Enough to to earn a salvation of our own. This is what Jesus did and what he does. The third takeaway is this as we progress through the passage back into verse 12. The social problem encourages spiritual reform. The spiritual problem, excuse me, the social problem encourages spiritual reform. Back to verse 12. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way May God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This idea of shaking out the fields, uh, the, the folds of the robe, it's, it's symbolism of, of a spiritual thing of confessing and repenting of sins of saying, let it be different. Let us shake out the sin that holds us back. Let us shake out the iniquities that have bound us. Let us shake out the the sin that's woven into our culture because they had a cultural problem, and that was a social problem, but it was also a spiritual problem. So Nehemiah, in this time, he inspires not only the social change, but also encourages spiritual reform. Notice who who it is that he recruits. He summons the priest... And it makes the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. You see, it just takes one. It's Nehemiah seeing a problem but also embracing the solution for for the problem. So then he inspires other people to take part in this too. You have people, normal common people, who now are doing the right thing and they're no more just bringing about the usury tax. And now you have nobles and officials and priests who are doing the wrong thing and now he's actually encouraging them to shake out the folds of the robes in other words shake away the sin that's that's so in them right now in that moment so it was a it was a physical act showing a spiritual commitment there's a couple of passages that, that touch here and 1 John 3:17 says this if someone has enough money to live well and he sees a brother and sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? In other words, if you see a problem, if you see something going on, this, it's the spiritual text of 1 John 13 is informing of what we should be doing socially, what we should be doing personally. And the, the question is rhetorical. He says, so if, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need, in other words, they have all they need and more, and yet you see somebody else in need and you don't respond with compassion, that what he asks and poses, how can God's love be in that person? Like, how can that be? Another passage from the Old Testament speaks into this, Isaiah 117, very boldly. Isaiah says this in the way that that Isaiah engaged much of his ministry. He says, stop doing wrong. (laughs) Doesn't get much more clear than that, does it? Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case for the widow. In other words, social problems should bring also about some spiritual reform. What might this mean? What this might mean is when the church meets a social need, that it needs to build a gospel bridge. That when we meet a social need, it builds a gospel bridge. Several years ago, I was officiating a wedding in Pennsylvania for some friends and we decided to do some sightseeing in Philadelphia, and it was great. We did all the things you should when you go to Philadelphia. You run up the Rocky Steps. I beat my son. That was the most important thing of that day. It was free. I don't even know if I beat him or not. He was in a lot better shape, so he may have beat me. But uh, so we had a great time. Ran up the Rocky Steps, saw all the cool stuff, Independence Hall. It was awesome. Liberty Bell. I didn't get to ring it. I wanted to. Didn't get to. They frown upon those things apparently. Um, but it was great. Be able to see it. Be in the room. Go into Independence Hall and see where the documents were written. Just a surreal, surreal time. But those were all the things that maybe a mom and dad would remember from that trip. But what my kids remind me of is what they didn't get to do. We stayed at a hotel that was on the river. I don't remember the, the name of the river. But all my kids remind me of is what they didn't get to do. What my kids wanted to do was go over the George Washington Bridge, and they wanted to leave Philadelphia and go into Camden, New Jersey. I've seen some pictures of Camden, New Jersey. There's no real reason to go to Camden, New Jersey, by the way, but they just really wanted to go to New Jersey. So when we talk about Philadelphia, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that trip. That's when dad wouldn't let us cross the George Washington Bridge to go into Camden, New Jersey so they could click off one more state off their list. That's all they wanted to do was cross that bridge and go into Camden, New Jersey and they've forgotten everything else. And, uh, and I just say this as, as a little therapy for myself because we had a great time, but all they remember is that. And we have great fun and every time we're together and that's mentioned, they, they remind me of that. And yet Philadelphia has the George Washington Bridge that connects Camden, New Jersey. When, when we go out and we decide as a church, we're, we're on one side of a cause, and we decide that we're going to advocate for another. When I say church, I mean even as individuals, not as a group. When we decide that we're going to step out and advocate for a cause, we then are building a gospel bridge. So when we do so, we're not just jumping into a cause. We should be thinking, how can we use our influence to make an impact for the gospel? I'll say it in this way. We must be willing to step outside our church safety nets and cross the street into real life, to real world issues to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To step outside our church safety nets, the place where we feel the most comfortable in here, and cross the street, wherever the street may be, into real-world issues to share the gospel message. You see, I believe there's different ways of looking at issues in the world. And I just want to just show you uh, by an example, illustration, a couple different approaches. The first approach, if you're taking notes, is is the fortress approach. The church often takes a fortress approach. So what we do is, and the fortress approach is we we sometimes just choose to build a wall between us and the world. And I understand why sometimes we do that. We choose to to build a wall protecting our kids, protecting everything that we hold to be sacred and everything that we value. But yet if we just continue to build a wall between us and the outside world, how in the world can we advocate for things outside of, of our world? And yet, sometimes we take the fortress approach where we just think, well, I just need to be walled off. We're safe in here. My kids are safe in here. Well, we know what we believe in here. We're comfortable with other people who look and think like us in here. And it's the fortress approach. I don't think that's the best approach. Perhaps there are moments that the fortress approach would be valuable. There's, there's another approach that is, I think, even less valuable than that. And this is the, the force Approach, and and we what we do during this is we're up front and and there's there's ways to campaign and there's ways to picket lawfully and peacefully there's ways to do that and there's ways to to honor God and yet sometimes I think we settle for this instead of personal relationships so we just we just convey this and we just ram this down people's throats and we don't think about. What that looks like for an unbeliever looking at us as we're trying this forceful approach. And sometimes I think we settle for this. Maybe we, we go to the, to the fortress approach and it fails. And then we just go into force and they're like, all right, well, if I have to be amongst them, I'm just going to give them the full force. And at the end of the day, just stop sinning, stop doing wrong, start doing the right thing. And I think that forceful approach isn't as good as what it possibly could be. And then there's another approach that is the fragrance approach. And the the fragrance approach is it's a little bit more subtle. You're gonna some I smell something over here, so I just want to help you guys out a little bit. There you go. Oh yeah, I gotta do that. Sometimes sorry. I know, I know. But you smell good now. Sometimes we we maybe need to choose a little different approach, and it's a less aggressive approach. The fragrance approach is it's not as in your face it's it's not as much as as what i talked about last week as as light sometimes it's just salt but instead what it does it, it just it, it's subtle and it's more long lasting and it takes so it takes whatever is wrong and it just maybe just woven in in more of a subtle approach of turning things that are wrong into making them right and yet even in saying this, I know that we've seen, we've seen the fortress approach, and has it worked? No. We've seen the force approach, and maybe there's some mixed reviews on if that's worked. But perhaps a better approach would be more of the fragrance approach to where it's more subtle. It still gets the job done. There's an example of this. In the scripture, in Matthew 13, 31 through 33, this is what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. In other words, it's a lot more subtle And it's just worked through the dough, and eventually, it's all throughout the dough. That's more fitting of the fragrance approach. It's not as obvious initially, as one person said, but it penetrates and impacts. This is how the gospel moves forward, not by force, but by penetrating our society with the same tools that Jesus used. And they were grace and truth. They were grace and truth. As I finish up, verse 14 through 19 is going to give us the last takeaway. It's this. Nehemiah embraces the role of God's man. Verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years later, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over all the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that, Nehemiah says. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. They did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for I for all I have done for these people. He embraces the role of God's man. He doesn't although things are uh, they would have been they could have been given to him by being the governor and special treatment and he could have added more demands on the people to basically fund his life there and he says, "But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to see what I'm supposed to do is by way of serving you and not to add more demands to you. This is what happens when a man or woman boy or a girl decides that they're going to embrace the role of God's man or woman on earth. That they realize and they, they accept the role that they're going to add value to the world and not just take things from the world. This also means for us that no Christian should be passive on key issues that have to do with humanity. When it comes to the murder of the unborn, Christians should be passionate about that. It also means that no Christian should be silent on the things that are being forced upon our kids in the education system. You and I should be very nervous. If the sex education agenda is passed in our state, you and I should be very nervous and advocate against that. We should be very nervous and we should be very active to see about and do whatever we can to turn about those things if we care about the generations that are following. Also, it means that that those of us who maybe we have emotional instability, understanding if we just are in a perpetual state of emotional instability, which means that we there also become an unreliable source of truth. If we have this emotional instability and we're in a cycle and it's our fault, understand that when it comes to, the, to you delivering truth, it's going to be a mixed message. That is unless you're honest about that instability and you're honest about what God's doing in the middle of it. It also means this, that if, if man leads his family like a tyrant, understand that that's going to lead your kids away from Christ and not towards Christ. And that you, in essence, will lose respect and influence over your kids. It also means if you're a student or you're an adult, that you choose to use foul foul language, you will not be able to effectively evangelize. Because that bit of hypocrisy is going to have a negative influence when we should have a positive influence in our world. So I'm not going to take a lot of time, but as you work these, these principles out, there are seven different principles here about embracing the role of God's man, woman, uh, boy, or girl and, and ways to maybe for you, maybe you're stirred toward a cause, and you're trying to figure out, should I advocate for this cause? I want to finish the sermon today with a video, and some of it is in Spanish with subtitles, but I want you to know that there are people in the world who advocate for causes because they've seen a problem and now they're speaking into the problem and they're addressing it and they don't see it as somebody else's problem. They actually embrace part of the solution. We've actually gone, we've been in this area and there's a video um, that I wanna show you. It's about a place called the Lily House. It's something near and dear to us and it's in the Dominican Republic. Show that if you would please.
4: The number one reason women go into prostitution in the DR is simply to provide food for their children. We've seen women in their 40s and as young as 12 years old on the street. There are currently between 60,000 to 100,000 women working in the sex trade in the Dominican Republic because they feel they have no other way to provide the basic
5: needs for their children. Llegué a la edad 15 años cuando tuve mi primera niña. De ahí, la situación fue empeorando, me encontraba trabajo. Una persona muy cercana a mí me llamó y me dijo que me iba a conseguir un trabajo en un restaurante. Cuando llegó la noche, un, un hombre se acercó a mí mientras que yo servía la, la bebida y me dijo cuál era mi tarifa. Entonces yo fui a donde la persona y le pregunté, ¿qué significa tarifa? Y me dijo, bueno, te voy a explicar, y me dijo, Bueno, lo que pasa es que esto no es un restaurante, como yo te había dicho. Eh, él te está preguntando eh, por cuánto tú quieres que tú puedas salir con él, estar con él una noche. Entonces, eh, yo le dije, no, eso no es lo que yo quiero, no es eso lo que habíamos hablado. Poco, pocas horas después, eh, mi mamá me había llamado y me dijo que mi niña estaba mal, que, que tenía que llevarlo al médico y que no había dinero suficiente. De ahí fue que tomé la decisión de salir con aquel hombre. eso fue la primera vez que empecé mi trabajo. Después que todo pasó, eh, salí del hotel descarsa, con mis zapatillas en la mano y llorando. Sentí como que no valía nada. Fue un momento muy difícil en en mi vida. Porque... Sí, porque... Porque en ese momento aún pensé que si me mataba o me quitara la vida fuera mejor.
4: It might be easy to ask, why don't they just say no? But there's so much need and poverty in this country. 25% of families fall into extreme deprivation. Women have twice as high unemployment rate as men, falling into 15% unemployment rate. These women suffer so much. By the time they're in a lifestyle of prostitution, they're stripped of their identity. They feel dirty. They feel shame. They feel like they have no one to run to, that no one cares. And that's why we here at Lily House, we go to the streets. We take the gospel of Jesus to the streets, to them, so that they can know that they can have a new identity, that they can have value, and that
5: they can have healing in Jesus. Cuando todo el mundo me rechazaba, él nunca me rechazó. When a woman comes to Lily House, she can bring
4: her children with her and we provide shelter, food, education for the children because we want the whole family to know that they are valued and they are loved. There's a 10% illiteracy rate here in this country and most of these ladies have dropped out of school at very young ages. So when they come to Lily House, we begin to share with them new skills, professional skills so that they can work with their hands with dignity. And many of them are just amazed at the talent and the skills that they
5: actually have and learn here. Ahora me, mirando atrás, me acuerdo de mi pasado, a veces siento como si no fuera yo. Para mí, Dios es lo máximo. Es alguien que me ha cambiado totalmente. Es el principio, el final. Es mi padre. eh, Soy adoptada, hija suya. Y... Le doy gracias a él por haber puesto sus ojos en mí, por haberme rescatado del mundo que yo me había encontrado.
2: So there's been several times to where we've been able to, to be around the lily house as actually a compound and you wouldn't even be able to know that it's even there unless, of course, you'd heard about the ministry from someone on the inside. So we know near about where that ministry is. And it's just amazing that you have an American. I believe she went there on a missions trip and just a missions trip that we've gone on many missions trips all throughout that area in the Dominican Republic. And yet she goes there, hears about this issue, and it's the issue of, of prostitution that is, is a real problem in that whole area Because around Boca Chica, all the way from the capital city, all the way down to where where the Lily House is, is just like a thoroughfare for prostitutes. Because uh, people coming in and wealthy people coming in and taking trips, but everybody knows that it's there. She comes in on a missions trip, hears about the problem, and then embraces a solution. I think that she is just one person of many people who have the opportunity of making a difference like that. And now with the Lily House and what's being done there and how lives are being changed there, it's because it was one woman who was moved, and her husband was moved of God to do something about the issue, to choose to have an impact. I believe for you and I, if we're to embrace the truth and what we even saw in the storyline of Nehemiah, I think there's something here for us as well. I invite you to stand. You know, at the end of the month, we're going to take our, our faith pledge promise for next year. And, and that's great. And we, we fund great work, similar work, like in different parts of the world. But in no way does that mean that's all we do is just send some money out to go do some things. I believe that God is stirring within someone's heart. Maybe they're supposed to cause A change here. That there's something that they're supposed to advocate against or someone to advocate for. To stand in the gap for somebody. To give somebody a voice when they don't have a voice. Maybe that's you. As we respond and we just have our ministry time, maybe for you, you know what that is and you just need to, to commit today. I just invite you to come to the front just commit to God, say, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm just committing this to you. You've given me this burden. I've carried it for so long. I don't know what to do. Maybe it's just coming forward to say, God, I just, I commit this to you. I, I just commit myself in service to you. Put me to, put me to work. Maybe for you, you already know what it is you're supposed to be doing and, and where it is you're supposed to be doing it. And maybe today is just the day that it's just your line in the sand to say, from this day forward I'm going to do it I'm going to follow through I'm going to, I'm going to step into that and I'm going to give God my all to make the impact that he wants in the world through me and yet for others maybe you just come in here and you're like whoa this is all new and you don't even know Jesus there's no better day than today there's no better moment than right now for you to come forward and accept Jesus He'll change your life. He won't make your life perfect, but he will make your life complete. That I can guarantee you. As we respond with singing, if there's business you need to do at the front, I welcome you to come to the front. If there's business in the seats, do it in the seats. And if there's something you're supposed to do after we leave here, go do the work. And once you do, send me a message so I can cheer you on. I can encourage you, I can equip you to do the thing that God is stirring you to do. In Jesus' name. Grateful to be able to see your face today, hug some necks today. Um, I just invite you guys to be seated. Marla has some things to share before we close up shop today. So looking forward to what God's going to do in you and also through you.
6: Well, hello. I didn't get to see you all earlier. I'm here now. I've got lots of things to share with you. We have several announcements um, that I just want to share, um, so bear with me and listen carefully, okay? Sound good? All right, awesome. So first of all, we have um, officer nominations um, that are going on in the back. There's a table um, back there and someone standing at the table, so if you have a someone that you would like to nominate to be an officer, a deacon, um, please do that in the back for your also, uh, we have a Thanksgiving praise, praise, I was getting ready to say a Thanksgiving parade. Woo. Um, Thanksgiving praise service that will be happening um, on November 20th. It starts at 5 o'clock. So we're looking forward to that. Make sure you come for that. Um, and then after that, this, our students have a Friendsgiving. And um, if you have a parent or if you have a student, the parents have already, should have already received something about that. Um, also, november twenty seventh, which is the next Sunday, we have the international banquet that will be happening. We have some signups in the back. So there's signups for like four different areas and dessert. If you could do an area and then worry about the d- we'll worry about the desserts, that'd be amazing because we really need those four categories filled in. Um and then, I promise I'm almost done. Ladies, we have a brunch coming up on December 3rd. We have tickets back there um, on the, at the table in the foyer. Um, someone's standing there now, so make sure you get your ticket for that. And then we have a Discover Calvary class going on December 4th. So if you're interested in being part of Calvary, we would love for you to sign up for that. There will be something on the card probably next week, or you can just write it on the card saying, I want to be part of Discover Calvary. I think that's it. There's one more actu- There's one more thing back there. It's called the Big Give Pajama Party, and I want families to join with us to do that. It is a kids' event. Um, there's a card back there. You can read about it. Make sure you grab that, um, and then if your family is interested, you sign up for it. There was a lot, wasn't there? But it's okay. It's okay. That means a lot of great things are going on here, and that's what we want to see. So we love you all, and have a great week.